0: This is State of Water. This is State of Water. This
1: is State of Water. State
0: of Water, coming at you right now.
2: State of Water. A podcast focusing on clean water issues and their relationship to policy, equity, community, and climate.
0: Featuring captivating interviews with Michiganders from many walks of life, State of Water is the official podcast of the Clean Water Campaign for Michigan, a program of the nonprofit organization Title Track. Hey, this is Jenny from Title Track. If you resonate with what you're about to hear, put those feelings into action. Take the first step toward getting involved by going to titletrackmichigan.org contact to sign up for our mailing list.
1: Welcome back, folks. Thanks for joining us. Today's episode features an interview that's not only empowering and good for the mind, but grounding and good for the heart. Seth Bernard has a moving conversation with bioregionalist Stephanie Mills. For nearly 50 years, Stephanie Mills has been writing and speaking for Nature and Community. She is a prolific published author, an adjunct professor, and has served on countless boards, from that of the Planned Parenthood Federation of America to her local natural foods co-op. In 2009, she was awarded an honorary doctorate from her alma mater. The citation called her, a visionary ecological activist and pioneering bioregionalist whose unswerving advocacy for the preservation of our shared planet and powerful message of personal responsibility teach us that a single voice can transform the world. She volunteers with local nature education and nonviolence groups. Her occasional writing, which appears on naturechange.org, extols the work of natural scientists and the organisms, ecosystems, and watersheds to which they are devoted. She joined Seth Bernard on a call from her home in the northwestern Lower Peninsula.
2: Hello. Hi, Stephanie.
0: Hi, Seth. How are you?
2: I'm well. So good to connect with you here on this rainy day in our neck of the woods, the Northwest Lower Peninsula. Thank you for taking time.
0: It's really an honor.
2: So we ran into each other at our local food co-op, um, before, uh, the pandemic escalated, uh, just a couple months ago. Can you speak a little bit about, um, just what quarantine has been like for you and perhaps, some reflections, some lessons, some hopes for the future?
0: Sure. Because I'm kind of a recluse and an introvert, um, it hasn't been uh, dramatically different from the way I live ordinarily. However, uh, what I'm noticing is that not having those kinds of uh, social interactions like uh, the one we enjoyed and um, the ability to hug friends I meet and all of that is um, kind of sapping something sapping uh, uh, a kind of energy um, I'm exceedingly fortunate that at the moment you know my needs are are met and I'm comfortable I I anticipate that there are going to be uh, systemic effects of this um, that are going to challenge us all in uneven ways. This came as a shock, but not a surprise. Hmm. Um, Ecologists, historians, epidemiologists, (laughs) biologists, um, demographers have been <clears throat> anticipating this kind of uh, of an ecological event um, happening to our species, and um, and it has some some very you know terrible and, and frightening personal consequences um, and social consequences. Uh, the hope. Uh, I I hold is that it will get us thinking in more systemic terms, um, and seeing seeing these kinds of phenomena in in a large context. As as you may know, you know when I got into uh, the ecology movement in '69. One of my great concerns was human overpopulation, and since that time, the human population has doubled. And um, mm. it, it's a touchy, touchy issue, and one that you know demands some real um, careful, careful thought and response. But that's one of the things that. We must be reflecting on um, as as we weather this, and um also I think our um, you know our own feelings about mortality mm. and what gives rise to health and and what we what we uh, need to do to engender um, community health. Mm. Uh, and 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 systemic responses to that can be very life-enhancing. I mean, you know, having grown up in um, farming, in organic farming, um, that our health really depends on on the health of the soil <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, and a, and a healthy food system. So, so as um, uh, some wise wise person once said we're confronted by insurmountable
2: opportunities <laughs> <laughs> wow so you you hearken back to 1969 as this catalytic time where you entered the movement can you bring us into um the now famous commencement address that you delivered
0: um certainly i um I was an unreconstructed liberal arts major at a small women's college and um, uh, loved that, you know, having that as a, as a foundation. But um, uh, the ecology movement, the environmental movement, was beginning to brew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I came across some writing by Paul Ehrlich, the, um, biologist who, you know, is continuing his work to this day, and I was really alarmed to, um, discover, you know, that these kind of processes of of unbridled growth, not just of human numbers, but of the expansion of human settlements and human economy were really, um, threatening the, uh, beauty and sustainability of life on the planet so you know I wound up being the commencement speaker and it wasn't just a rhetorical device but it was partly that and I said that um, one response I could make would be to have no uh, children at all and it's interesting to see that in the with the growing awareness of climate change that you know, young women um, of of the current generation, a few are beginning to sort of weigh that idea publicly. At any rate, um, you know, that is, that's an intensely personal choice, and I have revisited it a lot over the years and um, look on just with great tenderness when I see the kind of parenting... That's possible, as you uh, exhibit and others. Um, however, I think the question of you know how many how many children we choose to have that's an ecological act. You know that's an ecological action. So um, we we can't not look at this issue and and we can't it, and it's better if we can learn how not to be incendiary about it. Mm-hmm. And of course, it leads directly into upholding women's reproductive rights and economic rights and rights to education, because all of those things, in supportive and non coercive ways, uh, conduce to smaller family size and and healthier kids.
2: And so this was this was the year before. The first Earth Day in 1970 right and so um, you are a treasured author and essayist poet in 1990 on the 20th anniversary of Earth Day you were commissioned to write an essay on water for the publication in praise of nature and you've been so kind as to uh, prepare some passages from that to read for us today on the podcast Um.
0: Yes. Thank you so much for this invitation. So, here we go from the essay on water. It's true that they have 365 faces a year, remarks my friend Deborah, as we drive by a lovely little lake in early October. Dawn is just beginning to color the sky and is mirrored in the water's still surface. Tendrils of mist rise from the lake whose temperature is warmer than that of the air on this chilly morning. A little island clothed in pine trees stands in dark silhouette against the water's luminosity, which joins that of the horizon. Just the sight of water can be soul soothing. An hour later, stroking through the bleachy blue waters of a municipal pool, I'm thinking, water is so smooth marveling at how almost not there it feels against the skin, how kindly it buoys one up, how sparkling and yielding it is. About two-thirds of our weight is water. It's the basic constituent of all our tissues, of the fluids that course through our circulatory and lymphatic systems, of tears running down our cheeks, of saliva, mucus, urine, and amniotic fluid, all the waters of bodily life. Water is so everywhere present and such a commonplace that its gifts seem almost limitless. Water is the only substance on earth that exists in all three physical states solid, liquid, and gaseous. Make it hot enough, and water turns to steam, a gas with enormous expansive force make it cold enough and it crystallizes, becoming snow or ice, water you can walk on. It moves gracefully from state to state. Water's physical properties are extraordinary and its relation to Earth is integral. The biosphere runs on water, sunlight, and minerals. All these ingredients are present on the other planets of our solar system, but the temperatures of those planets are too extreme, too hot, too cold to allow liquid water in its solvent circulatory form flowing water is a presence unique to earth among all the planets in our solar system
1: mm. thank you
0: thank uh, thank gaia
2: <laughs> yes indeed <laughs> she's got the talent <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk let's talk about watershed stephanie You know, in, in the email exchange that we had in the last week, I love this quote from you, zones of mutual responsibility. And I've also heard the quote, or watersheds are the lifeboats of the 21st century. Gosh. Yeah. And, um, I've, I've been thinking and doing a lot of work around decolonizing, um, Mm -hmm. and, um, all of this time at home during quarantine, um has been a really reflective time for me too, just to look at so many of the ways um, that I'm programmed to think in, in sort of colonial terms in, in, um, in terms of productivity. And, and we look mm. at our maps, and um, these maps are of these arbitrary borders that had to do with power and conflict and dominance. And um, to think in terms of watersheds is a, a practice of decolonizing and, and looking at uh, actual uh, placemaking. And this has been a big part of your work too as a bioregionalist. So I'd, I'd love to just hear you talk about watersheds and how you see them.
0: Oh gosh, Jeff. um you spoke, uh, you spoke those thoughts so well. The bioregional movement, um, has long, you know, looked at watersheds as natural—what to say—natural countries. You, you know, as as you uh, mentioned, the the boundaries are uh, a function of the of the landforms and uh, and the vegetation, and the health of our watersheds is a mutual. Responsibility, but we have been so, um, especially in in the last 500 years, um, accustomed to think of uh, linear territories and geopolitical territories and um, governance boundaries that to see watersheds. Um, as unities, really, is uh, a great act of the imagination, and um, and of of um, traveling and and experience. Um, it's not impossible in cities, and I know that that Detroit, uh, or I believe Detroit, has had a watershed festival. Um, I remember. Uh, time up in Toronto, visiting there with some um, bioregional activists, and some of them were kind of mapping uh, historic stream courses that lay sort of buried under, under streets, roads, and in people's basements, and, 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 you know, trying to reanimate senses of these nonlinear organic forms that carry Mm. water which is absolutely essential to our lives it you know it it does blow my mind that we ever got to be careless about water Mm. Mm. and and yet um our uh you know this present form of civilization is uh Seems almost oblivious to it. And so the work of water protectors and watershed um, activists um, is really revelatory and uh, also uh, revolutionary in the, in the best way, you know, of harking, harking back to some essential realities
2: that we all share. Mm. Thank you for that. Thank you for that reflection. And I I share your feelings. It's mind blowing. Sometimes it it just dawns on me how careless we've been, you know, in in the middle of the night or as I'm trying to fall asleep. And it's shocking. And and yet I I go back to your previous quote uh, about uh, (laughs) opportunities, opportunities for growth and healing as individuals and as a species. Abound and surround us right now.
0: Mm hmm, mm hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. And water is a great, um, you know, it's a great conductor of awareness.
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, would you be so kind as to, to do another reading for us?
0: Oh, certainly. Uh, this is much what we've been speaking about. One of the truths most Clearly expounded by water courses is that geometric human political boundaries have an arbitrary quality, cleaving right through watersheds, lake basins, and river systems. Mm-hmm. These territorial divisions act to the detriment of the waters, reinforcing the misconception of a separate, autonomous existence in persons and peoples. The delusion that it is a state's or nation's prerogative to deforest its uplands, or to dispose of contaminants in, or to overdraw on its river systems, regardless of the effects on all the lives downstream, and throughout the body of water where they were where they are bound, be it an ocean or an inland sea. That's that's the delusion. Mm-hmm. Given the present values of our civilization, any individuals or corporations, states or nations exploitation of a common resource, such as a river system or the ocean, whether it be as a source of food, as in fish or fuel, as in offshore drilling, yields an obvious immediate benefit to that individual or entity. While the detriments, depletion and pollution, are borne by the entire community. Patterns of responsibility, of risk and benefit, of cause and effect are confused. And. I must note, you know, that book was written in 1990, and um, the commodification and privatization of water um, was, I think, just then getting underway. So, so when having listened to your podcasts and revisiting this text, I I realized, you know, I we hadn't we hadn't seen nothing yet you know in mm. terms of of uh, uh kind of the misappropriation of of water and uh but you know it's 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 a de- in a way i mean this is an extreme statement but it's really a desecration to commodify anything
2: mm. i remember the first time i saw a bottle of water for sale it was uh I was in Wisconsin at the time. It was the late nineties and it was a, it was Dasani, you know, Mm Coca-Cola brand water. Mm -hmm. And I just felt horrified. I just wanted to scream. This is not Dasani. This is just water that they're Mm -hmm. pumping and selling and trying to make a killing literally. Mm -hmm. Um, and how, where is this leading? This is not, this is leading us into ominous territory and, um, You know, we have colleagues like Jim Olson, Jim Olson, (laughs) um, who's devoted himself to uh, upholding public trust. And um, there are so many people really working on this issue. And this past week, uh, just, you know, in the last couple of days, we had a loss um, in the the lawsuit, Michigan Citizens for Water Conservation um, against Nestle. Um, and those kinds of losses can be um, infuriating and and can take the wind out of people but um, there are bigger efforts at play to actually close the bottling loophole in the Great Lakes Compact um, and and rights of nature efforts afoot and and the work of flow as a whole uh, to uphold public trust laws so uh, we must you know take heart and and keep on going and i going back to your initial check-in you know in terms of systemic thinking and looking at larger systems at play i think that there's there's some good that can come out of this time in terms of our thoughtfulness around uh who we elect and uh, choose to represent us uh, and their the perspective and and who they're representing you know you talk about water from that perspective uh of 30 years ago and, and what has happened. Um, you you have been involved in uh, climate change, you know, all the way back to when it was referred to as the greenhouse effect and then global warming, this whole movement to raise awareness about this this phenomenon. And uh, I'm curious, you know, you've, you've worked with the Post Carbon Institute, you uh, were involved with environmental movements, you know, through your whole adult life. Uh, I'm curious to hear some perspective from you about um, what your experience has been seeing um, these initial calls to raise awareness and uh, and sound the emergency on climate change uh, and, and um, how that has led us to where we are right now in 2020.
0: Well, you know, the intelligence that fossil fuel combustion could alter the atmosphere is, is over a century old. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, back in the environmental and ecology movement of the uh, late 60s, early 70s, um, I don't know if we, you know, had the total total energy analysis uh, going, but um, there was a certain amount of hostility to automobiles <laughs> and the pollution they caused. And there was also um, a tremendous amount of tinkering with um, solar solar energy, but not so much, I mean, it was, a little ahead of photovoltaics and the more high-tech uh, applications. It was more about energy conservation and solar water heaters and, um, you know, biogas and that sort of thing. Um, so, uh, you know, we've had all kinds of awareness. It it seems to me that, um, you know, certainly something new has been, added with high-powered computational modeling and and, and quantification. So we have, it, we look at, at energy now, the energy question and the uh, climate question often as a uh, kind of a technological problem, mm-hmm. you know, that, that can be solved by uh technology, and certainly, you know, that's got a part to play, but one of the things I really value the work of the Post Carbon Institute for is looking at, um, you know, being pretty thorough about looking at energy consumption and understanding that, you know, just about everything we do now um, entails uh, the use of oil and oil, specifically uh, petroleum. And, and so whenever we talk about making some new um, device to, to deal with this, you know, self-driving cars or whatever, we, we are talking about consuming petroleum and emitting it. So um, I, I think that a, a more rigorous understanding of energy uh, sources and uh, their uses is 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 important to develop. Um, and as for the big, sort of appalling picture about <clears throat> climate change, um, we. You know, it seems to me that that um, c- certainly all manner of ingenuity and, and policy, well, not all manner of policy responses. I mean, I guess what I'm driving it is some policy responses could actually make things worse uh, rather than making them better over the long run. So we have to look really carefully at what we're doing. But we also have to Find ways together to support each other to stop using so much energy and stop um, subscribing to the the cult of growth you know ultimately we need to uh shrink the human footprint on on the planet and um that's going to require some pretty remarkable behavior change on all our parts. And that that doesn't come easy in a culture that's
2: prized uh, consumerism Mm -hmm. and ease and convenience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing. And, you know, the kind of... Some of this goes back to what you said at the beginning, you know, about your mentality and, and the sacrifices that you've chosen to make and um, your sense of responsibility uh, as you entered the movement that has informed your life. And I've found that, and Lee Sprague speaks about this in a previous podcast, from an indigenous perspective, it's, it's more about responsibilities than rights. In, in terms of our relationship with each other and our relationship with nature. And we become so preoccupied with our rights, with our rights as citizens. But what about our responsibilities? And mm-hmm. yeah, in terms of being able to respond to the to the times that we live in, I've always felt an enormous sense of responsibility. I'm wondering if, if you can um, do another reading for us and and then we can speak a little bit about your work with Enrek and and our paths crossing in that journey afterward
0: sure i might read something now from my uh book epicurean simplicity which was what, two, 2009 and and in this book i i tried to approach the idea of consuming less as as a path to Uh, So, because they are tangles of interacting forces, all the scenarios are shifting fast. Climate change ramifies throughout systems. So does the introduction of exotic species and of hormone-disrupting chemicals. Biologists speak of cascades of extinctions, for no species is an island. Even running over a squirrel in any town USA means there's one less tree planter at work. Now that these big systemic derangements are becoming more evident, I discover that I too have been in denial. I hadn't anticipated immersion in the big system-crashing consequences. Not here. Not yet. But in the summer of 1999, for the first time, There were wads of algae rocking under Lake Michigan's waves on the rippled sandy bottom of Whaleback Bay. Lake Michigan is oligotrophic, big, young, and cold without much aquatic plant life. Ordinarily, there's no conspicuous lakeweed. By the mid-20th century, the lake's ecosystem had been revolutionized by the invasion of parasitic sea lampreys which led to the virtual demise of the lake trout, thus eliminating the predator that might have kept the eruptions of another oceanic invader, a little fish called the alewife in check. That beach at Quailback Bay was one of the stops on the whirlwind tour of the splendors of the county my fiance conducted in honor of my initial visit in the summer of 1984. How novel to me and lovely it was to drive to a beach through a hardwood forest. There were groves of white cedars along a creek that flows into the bay, as well as oaks, maples, birches, and beeches. Thick by the edge of the dirt road were wild roses, grapes, and alders. Willow thickets made a portal to the foredunes dunes with their glowing fringes of beech grass. All this opened out to miles of pale, sandy beach and clear water. Coming from California, from the Pacific Rim, I hadn't realized that Lake Michigan is a freshwater sea. I certainly couldn't believe that such a beautiful beach could exist and not be completely a swarm with beachgoers. It became my birthday custom to visit Whaleback Bay for a ceremonial swim. In mid-September 1995, it was a loner's day at the beach. There were only two other people in the whole expanse. A brilliant blue sky, turquoise waters deepening to ultramarine, a clean beach, the constant sound of waves, sunlight and warmth, and high fine moire clouds. I walked a long way south on the beach for the sheer dumb pleasure of feeling myself walk. Eventually, I stopped walking and went for a swim. The water was cold, but not heart-stopping. As I swam, I savored the lake's transparency and the clean, tawny color of the sandy bottom, looked through the water seeing shapes and looked landward to the long, sweeping curve of the beach, the pale, windswept whips of beach grass, the brooding, raw silhouettes of the white pines, and the lush hardwood forests on the headlands.
2: Mm. Um, Thank you, Stephanie.
0: Oh, gosh, yeah. Um, Yeah, that uh, piece was about sort of the realization of, well, you know, side by side of the persistent uh, beauty and immensity of a great lake. And also, um, you know, the magnitude of of human impacts—it it is really hard for us uh, to conceive of our collective impacts. And um, as uh, one great ecologist said, you know, we can never do just one thing. Hmm. So. Um you know international seaborne trade um, completely revolutionizes the Great Lakes ecosystem because of uh, mussels uh, traveling in in ballast water mm-hmm. so all of these it, it, it to me is is certainly um, an argument for uh, caution and also, you know it does entail um some grieving Mm -hmm. and um in some of your earlier podcasts and in that great workshop that we both attended the matter of of uh, historical trauma was raised and learning how individually and together to, you know, transform it, to, to, to acknowledge it and and endure it and transform it. And mm-hmm. I think that that, you know, grappling with the, the way that we've changed uh, the face of the earth and, and the waters, and I realize that to use the pronoun we just takes in too many different kinds of peoples and mm. practices mm-hmm. but, but for now um, I think we need to we just need to acknowledge the, the meaning of these um, changes and let it you know deepen our resolve to make a, a creative and regenerative and respectful uh, response uh, even even as we move forward into some immense turbulence it's it's a tall order um for our species and and yet we we have been given so much and and we are so gifted um, you know it must be possible
2: <laughs> I like that it must be here we are. I uh, I have I've also been um, careful. I, I appreciate you saying that, Stephanie, about using we, and um, just sort of recognizing that Indigenous peoples have lived in right relationship with ecosystems for millennia, and that there are many cultures uh, that are alive and intact on on the planet now. Um, that aren't in this sort of um, colonial, you know, uh, mindset of dominance uh, as, a, as a form of productivity and success. And, um, and I think that recognizing the um, systems of oppression that are at play in communities of human beings and in, in, the, in our, our ecosystem and our planet um, is part of this work of cultural healing that, to me, is is a, a deeper um, part of the conversation around climate change. Um, and I, I have been heartened to see the the movement become a, more of a justice centered movement in in recent years, and in, in the last decade especially. And um, you know, analysis of energy production and and the the you know results as you said you know of, of fossil fuel combustion on our uh, Earth's atmosphere that that is not to be denied but um, we we have uh, gotten into a lot of trouble as a species just addressing symptoms uh, to our problems for a long time and um, so, so it's a it's a huge moment of reckoning right now.
0: Yes and in, indeed it is and and you know harking. Back to uh, indigenous people and and First Nations, often years ago when I was working on a bioregional special issue of Coevolution Quarterly, um, uh, Winona Duke provided us uh, with uh, a map of North America that showed uh, pre-colonial uh, tribal boundaries, and it it overlapped watersheds pretty pretty closely mm-hmm. and we know that uh, the last redoubts of biodiversity on the planet are often also the homes of indigenous people and the last redoubts of indigenous languages mm-hmm. and so so you know watersheds are, are kind of the point of Origin of diversity and subsistence and um, a, a hu- human creativity that's not, you know, disembodied from mm. uh, fundamental ne- meeting existential needs in community with
2: all beings. Mm. Mm. Beautiful. I, I want to also um, lift up our, our friend Julie Gartner is um, making some maps for us for the Clean Water Campaign and for Title Track. And the, the first one that she made is a map of Michigan that shows our watersheds. Mm-hmm. And so I just want to lift that up and uh, we'll share it on social media, but people can check that out at the Clean Water Campaign website or the, the Title Track website. Um, Wonderful, yes. Wonderful. It's it's just beautiful to look at, and um, let's let's move into some Niitwana conversation now. Sure. So I I think that's that's how our paths first were connected, and um, you know we move in many of the same circles. But you've been a long time board member of the Niitwana Research and Education Center. You know, it was founded in 1987 on Bob Russell and Sally Van Vleck's wedding day at the Nia Tawanta Inn, and the whole NREC community has played such a huge role in my life. Um, I'd love to just hear your reflections on your work with NREC and um, and and about our dear friend and beloved ancestor, Bob Russell, and Sally uh, as well. Yes. Well,
0: it's, you know, it's deeply personal. Yeah. Um, it, I just you know, it it was love from the from the get go. Um Bob and Sally were among uh the first friends I had here when I moved uh to Michigan. Um Bob Russell and my late um first and only husband Phil Teal were were great friends uh, and environmental activists. Um and um uh, The Neotawana, as you know, has been a a focal point and a gathering place, and also um, just kind of a, a, you know, a responsive entity. The fact that it was structured but not uh, rigidly structured meant that you know the Neotawana folks could uh, show up on the spot for a demonstration or be the place where people would um, gather to hash out uh, ideas and strategies and and where there could be intimate um, conferences and um, workshops. And Russell, of blessed memory, just had an amazing mind and and such an array of talent, um, he he had a scientist's uh, clarity and uh, acuity, um, and you know he he had the courage to look um, at some of the things we're confronting straight on. And the the joke was, we we called ourselves Doctor Doom and Miss Gloom because. Um, <laughs> I too, you know, am I am really interested in the bad news, and um, so every so often we get together and we just kind of top each other's ecological <laughs> disaster stories, you know. Um, but uh, but Russell was always and and never not with. Sally, you know, but he was always finding a leading edge of uh, of thinking, um, like resilience thinking, um, to to kind of frame the work. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that Tawana did that still is um, having uh, impacts uh, here, and they and they were doing it in collaboration with many other. Uh, outfits was uh, uh, the pioneers' mm-hmm. conferences, and and those were so valuable because they brought together uh, practical responses, um, cultural responses, and uh, kind of objective uh, information, and, and you know campaigns that uh, needed to needed to be mounted, kind of like. The bioregional conference congresses over over many years, you know, sort of pulling together all the people who are engaged in different ways uh, to look at um, the the bios, you know, the living of life in specific places and and finding ways to do that that can be, you know, developed uh, in perpetuity. You know, that's the goal, is is what the bioregionalists call re-inhabitation. And and so the Neotawanda, you know, which is kind of at a a sacred meeting place uh, and continues to be, uh, it was just a force for good for uh, many many years, and uh, is still, you know, it was it was mycelial. It it continues mm. to to link us and and uh,
2: nurture us. Mm. Mm. Thank you, Stephanie. I I always tear up hearing you talk about Bob. You you had this such a beautiful bond, and I know you and I just held his friendship in such a intimate place where we just both felt so comforted by the, the grim realities that we were both looking at. Like there was a, a sense of belonging and not, not, not loneliness in it. And of course, Bob's alter ego, Captain Blackheart was just like this hero of peering into the darkness bravely. Um, you know, and, uh, I uh, I think about him every day. I miss him terribly and I I am so curious, you know, and, and I, I feel like our relationship continues in such a beautiful way. Mm-hmm. But I I think about the kind of conversations mm-hmm. we'd be having often, you know. Yes. <laughs>
0: yes, yes. I I miss him too terribly, Seth, and same you know it would be so interesting to know you know what he what he would make of this moment and how he would analyze um, the policies that are uh, you know sort of being invoked or disregarded or proposed uh, mm-hmm. right now and um, and also um, the the opportunities that might, uh, present themselves because boy if this isn't a time to question conventional economic thinking I don't know when we'll have have a better chance you know and, and for uh, relocalizing our economies and, and you know Russell was a part of uh, developing a local currency in the mm-hmm. Grand Traverse Area, which was probably a little ahead of its time, but, um, you know, he, he was a, a great systemic thinker. And also, as you know, I mean, one of the things I miss most terribly is he was so funny. So funny. And, and, and you know, just wouldn't you give anything to hear him cackle again.
2: <laughs> oh, I can hear it in my mind right now. Yeah. 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 Uh, Bob talked so much about resilience before it really became a hot topic. Um, Like, as you mentioned, resilience thinking is a frame, and he had a TV show. Even as he was battling stage four cancer, he continued to make episodes of investigating community resilience, and um, part of the resilience thinking is, is just this collective ownership and, again, responsibility around governance. Mm-hmm. And, and taking all of the responsibility out of the idea that government is supposed to do everything but that governance is something that we all have to get good at um, in our communities
0: Yes, and
2: yes. it's such an important moment for that right now
0: indeed it is mm-hmm. and um, I would like uh, just to hark, hark back to Post Carbon Institute for a second and mm-hmm. commend um to your listeners uh, the resilience website mm-hmm. uh, that that p c i um, has uh, has created it's it's an invaluable resource uh, with stories of very um, tangible community initiatives towards building resilience and also um, analytical pieces think pieces um you know uh
2: is that resilience dot org, Stephanie?
0: Uh yes. Yes. The, I think a great ecologist Ray Dasmun spoke about us becoming plain uh, members and citizens of our biotic communities, and so, um, you know, learning learning from the living world that surrounds us and witnessing that resilience, which we're getting to see as spring creeps across the land and, you know, learning how uh, to participate uh, locally and mutually. I mean, I, I wonder if, if mutual aid doesn't come under the heading of uh, governance, you know, mm. sort of gover- governance from, from the from the household and and family and neighborhood on up and um we are seeing so much of that mm-hmm. uh in this in this moment you know where the will to help uh our our fellow human
1: beings is is really strong mm-hmm.
0: it is it is a life affirming urge
1: it is
2: I, I too have felt that this is an amazing moment for us to take a look at um, what's holding the fabric of our communities together, you know, and, and these mutual aid networks, they popped up immediately. It was just our good nature, you know, giving, uh, giving our good nature a chance to express itself. And uh, I think that a lot of this will continue on and, and and indeed it has been here for years and a lot of the helpers have, have taken uh, a little bit more of a center stage. I've really been loving Brad Kick and, and the work of Crosshatch uh, throughout this process and uh, so many folks in the nonprofit sector um, are being valued for, for the gaps that they filled in the framework mm-hmm. of society for, for so long and... And Nia Tawana as well, it's I, I wanna I wanna touch on Nia Tawana again and some some beautiful things that I've learned from Nia Tawanta and from Sally in particular is to have the the way that you go about doing things as an organization be a reflection of the world that you wanna live in. And and oh, yes. you know, and, and it's and it's such a welcoming ethos that sally has always had um Mm -hmm. with the inn and and uh a lot so much intention and and uh space for prayer and and for um invoking things and including all voices Mm -hmm. um and uh this commitment to consensus all these years and and um and for the process to be beautiful not just the desired outcome but the the process itself to be of value to everyone and honoring of everyone involved i've learned so much about how i want to be in servant leadership um with with the organizations that i'm a part of and the communities that i'm a part of from sally and from the the niatawanta way and so i was just so so touched um, when Sally came to me before the launch of Title Track to offer to pass the torch of Nia Tawanta to Title Track. And um, I still remember so vividly, it was a full moon and it was um, during the Long Memory Project, which was this gathering of all of these elder activists that you were a part of facilitating, um, and then younger poets and musicians got, got together and listened for hours to all of these activists and cultural workers from our, our region tell stories of, about movements. And then we had this time at the inn to create work around it. Just such mm-hmm. a beautiful model created by mm-hmm. Crosshatch. And then Sally and I took a long walk and she shared that, you know, it had been several years since Bob's passing, and she'd come to the discernment to um, to pass on the assets and the legacy of Nia Tawanta and we, we realized that we could actually take over the 501c3, so it was it was several months later in the summer, uh, around the anniversary of the solstice of uh, Nia Tawanta, that we had this event of the passing of the torch, and Sally literally passed me a torch uh, <laughs> and we were encircled by community, it was just like a, a dream, it was one of the most beautiful things I've been through and um, and you read a blessing um, that day and I would invite you now to, to share that with our listeners if you'd be so kind
0: I'd be honored
2: mm, thank you
0: may we know our lives are sacred that everything alive is holy. May we find friends and dance together, know when to rise and when to rest. May we know our place in Mother Earth and healing ways to dwell. May our stories be worth telling for the love of those to come. May our hearts beat warm within us May our minds be whole and clear. May we move with grace and purpose and be skillful, brave, and kind. May we never lack for vision. May we inspire and understand. May our strength be in compassion and all beings our concern. May justice, truth, and beauty Be the light that lead us
2: on. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, Seth. I want our listeners uh, to know that um, your books can be found very easily on on the Internet, and your website is smillswriter.com which is a great destination to learn more about you and your work.
0: Oh, thank you.
2: Yes, Thanks thank you. Thanks very
0: much. Wow. Um, it's just such a joy uh, to know you and, and, and through you, all the people that you're working with and for, uh, and, and all that you're weaving together. It's really, really luminous.
2: Mm, thank you. Thanks, Seth my my honor my honor to be a part of all this and um i i love to talk a little bit about the arts and culture and music at the ends of these interviews so Mm -hmm. just in in closing stephanie um this has been such a rich journey and I'd, i'd love to leave a little space for your earth prayer as well at the end oh sure um In terms of music and and art and culture, can you speak a little bit, just from a very personal perspective, about uh, what you listen to and and how um, the arts and culture have influenced your life?
0: Um, Golly. Well, uh, (laughs) I um, am a big radio fan, and we have a Um. terrific uh, community radio station here in uh, the Traverse area, WNMC mm-hmm. and it kind of educates me um, I, I'm not, I I am don't have very well developed knowledge of uh, music, of, of, of popular music um, and so I listen to WNMC and listen to the world beat and listen to the Country Western and listen to the reggae programs and the big band programs and the whole mm-hmm. you know array of uh kind of off slightly off the beaten track of of music that they play and I'm just and and of course folk air um, and I'm just mm-hmm. wowed by um, musicians and songwriters and And everything that's kind of behind making that wonderful, uh, engaging, sometimes challenging sound, you know, all the hours of practice, all the kind of head scratching about lyrics, all the, um, you know, dynamics of, of working together with other musicians and and you know, inventing new combinations of instruments, and um, and you know, having the power with all of that, sometimes to get a seventy-one-year-old lady to boogie around her living room. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I'm not all that particular, and I am high, very, very grateful um, that that you and and all the players in the world. Uh, you know it is as vital as water
1: mm. <laughs> it is <laughs> you
0: know uh, mm, and it's you. so diverse mm-hmm. it it really is a testament to to the richness of of human uh, human creativity and and perspectives on on a world that's not strictly
2: verbal beautiful, yes, gratitude to to the community radio stations mm-hmm. Eric Hines at NMC has, has been so devoted to that station for so many years and we we appreciate his work and the work of all the folks there and it's it's uh it's powerful too to have that connection um with you know Bob and Dirk Koning, who founded the Community Media Center in Grand Rapids and WYCE is is I think the biggest uh, community radio station in Michigan at this point. Wow! And, uh, and you know, Dirk went around all over the world setting up community media centers and, and where the people could take back the media. It's so important. And um, I love that. I love that um, you just lifted up WNMC. And anything else you'd like to say about music, art, culture? It
0: would be a really paltry world without it. And <laughs> Um, so you know, there's a, a saying that if you have two loaves of bread, you should sell one to buy hyacinths to feed your soul. <laughs>
2: um,
0: it's it's so important <clears throat> to include uh, arts, um, you know, all across the spectrum, everything from symphonic music to. You know, front porch hootenannies, and from community murals to you know collections of the old masters to to have um, to have that as as part of uh, an, an essential part of living. It's not it's not a luxury. It's a necessity, and mm-hmm. and it it points to to the. You know the really good things that we're capable of and and it adds beauty to the world at a time when so much beauty is being um, leached out of it mm, beauty you. beauty and truth um, are uh, absolutely essential if we're going going to be human going forward
2: another another striking lifting of the veil. Um, With quarantine is is how art and creative practitioners have have been so important to everyone in quarantine and yet we're hit very, very hard um, in Mm -hmm. terms of unemployment. And, you know, it's it's always been a real sore spot for me that people have just undervalued recorded music and that this has been allowed to happen um, with. You know, I I have a friend who had a thousand, or a million, sorry, a million streams of one of his songs, and his paycheck for that was like less than three hundred dollars.
0: Uh huh. Uh um, huh.
2: And so, I mean, it's it's not to pity the artist, and artists can grow gardens too, so we don't have to starve, but um, we do we do have. Uh, a, a lot of upside down cultural values that hopefully um, are you know going to be accelerated in their sorting out through this time of reflection yeah. the great pause
0: well it uh, I mean at the policy level a uh, kind of a basic income mm. uh, would be uh, something that would support all kinds of, of creative
2: endeavors yes. I think it was a guy clark song there ain't no money in poetry that's what sets the poet free i've had all the freedom i can stand
0: <laughs> yeah yeah well
2: stephanie i feel like we could just keep going for hours and we will we will in life um but i do encourage our listeners to to uh, buy your books and buy them as gifts for, for their friends, um, and, and go to smillswriter.com uh, to, do your, to do your browsing. And um, I, I'm just so grateful for, for your voice and your, your presence in, in my life, in our community, and your, your dedication um, to, the, to the work through all these years and, and so many um, different expressions and, and shapes and forms. Um, I I would love to invite you, in closing, to share Earth Prayer from your book, In Service of the Wild.
0: Thank you, Seth. And I, I must say that, you know, dedication to this cause has brought me um, the greatest array of precious friends uh, mm-hmm. anybody could hope for. Mm-hmm. So this is from In Service of the Wild, which uh, is about uh, ecological restoration. Restoration is what lies before us, but the restoration must be of the whole system, and that whole ecosystem includes the human self, the personal heart, the transformative power of the great romance, be it with an admirable mate or a noble cause, remains marvelous. Surely the possibilities
2: of it linger, surely as the seed bank of the forest will
0: reproduce the woods, given the least advantage. If I could wish for the total and complete restoration of the world and the banishing of despair, I would wish for the immediate preservation of all species, all prairies, all forests, all swamps, all deserts, and for a return of crazy love, of go-for-broke passion between women and men, men and men, women and women, humans of all ages and places, between humans and soil and everything that arises therefrom. Let the love and commitment between beings be part of this great healing and purify us of cynicism. If only we can dare to belong to one another and to our land.
1: Mm. Uh
2: Aho. Aho. Ashe, amen. Yeah. Thank you, Stephanie. Oh,
0: thank you, Seth.
2: Be well. You too. Take good care. (laughs) Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. State of Water is powered by the Clean Water Campaign for Michigan. This campaign represents an opportunity to help place clean water issues front and center by partnering with environmental organizations across the state, by educating voters, and by urging every candidate running for public office to make a strong stand on critical issues affecting Michigan's waters. Using storytelling and music events across the state to amplify the groundswell of public support for clean water issues, this campaign is driven by Michiganders from all walks of life, who share a similar priority protection of our water?
0: Both State of Water and the Clean Water Campaign are programs of the Michigan based nonprofit Title Track. Their mission engaging creative practice to build resilient social ecological systems that support clean water, racial equity, and youth empowerment.
1: Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on Wednesday.